In preparation for our Thursday morning men's study this week, <clears throat> which uh, significantly for we meet in a workshop, which will become obvious why that's significant in due course. But we read a stimulating, evocative, and really honest piece by Kathleen Norris in the book Devotional Classics entitled Finding Faith in the Mundane. In the final paragraph, she wrote, it was in the play of writing a poem that I first became aware that the demands of laundry might have something to do with God's command that we worship, that we sing praise on a regular basis. Both laundry and worship are repetitive activities with a potential for tedium. And I hate to admit it, but laundry often seems like the more useful of the tasks. But both are, in fact, the work that God has given us to do. What Norris observes there resonates deeply with my core belief in something that I mentioned last week, that the, the big story of the scriptures, the four-chapter gospel, ought, is, can, will, the overarching narrative of scripture, insists on the radical connection of Sunday in Monday, the integral nature of worship and work. God himself desires by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through a human writer to be known as a worker. A word used to describe, that he uses to describe himself seven times in the short psalm that we read this morning. In fact, the impetus there, the, 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 the admonition to us is to worship him for his work. God is a worker, and we are created in his image before anything else. And this may depress you. <laughs> As workers, too. I intend to show this biblically and to greatly expand our understanding of what work means within God's bigger story. The story we looked at last week. Because our story and God's story have become almost entirely disintegrated. In post-Christian America today, a day of hyper-individualism and identity invention, we are encouraged, if not expected, to write our own unique story, making it up as we go along. <clears throat> And it's not working. It's a little like building an airplane without plans while you're flying it. <laughs> Definitely has its ups and downs. <laughs> um, yeah. See what I did there? Um, that's usually what I tell. That's the answer to my question when Lauren asks me how my flight lesson went when I've been teaching someone. Oh, it, it had its ups and downs. Um, yeah. But here's just 
the results of that are, are the cultural consequences of, of doing that are predictable and, and real. And here's just one from recent history. When offices shuttered across the country in March of 2020 and companies issued mandatory stay-at-home orders, many employees were forced to work remotely. Overnight, organizations had to pivot for, to a virtual first or a virtual only option. In a matter of weeks, our kitchens and bedrooms became our offices. For some, the sudden shift meant more than bringing work into their home. It meant that they wore the hats of professionals, school teachers, and caregivers simultaneously. And for most, the time that had previously been spent attending and volunteering at church or dining out or attending concerts with friends or even participating in a bowling league <laughs> or sweating it out in the gym, was suddenly freed up. Our lives became basically unrecognizable, triggering a widespread reevaluation of the meaning of work, which is not in itself a problem. We should evaluate what work means, except that many, if not most, have concluded that it really doesn't have any meaning. Beyond maybe paying the bills, work is basically meaningless which the New York Times says over 85% of Americans view their job. That's how they would describe their work, meaningless. So, so many people, white-collar knowledge workers, really, not tradesmen, simply left work behind in staggering numbers. The, the FAQs around the initial introduction of the Green New Deal, which was not passed, but highly debated, talked about how the U.S. should, and I'm quoting from that here, commit to guaranteeing a job to all people of the United States and promise livable incomes for those who are, quote, unquote, unwilling to work. Not, not unable to work, unwilling. Obviously, this is not based on 2 Thessalonians 3.10, which you can look up later. This extraordinary and unprecedented trend chronicled by the New York Times in a series of articles in late 2022 entitled The Great Resignation is built on the implicit belief that work itself is wrong or a mistake, that humans cannot both flourish and work. Work is seen today as largely, if not mostly, meaningless. And I would contend it's because we have, as a culture, forgotten or rejected God's bigger story, and as a result are living disintegrated lives. Because this is entirely antithetical to the biblical story, which insists that work is actually integral to a flourishing life. And I believe that beginning to move from meaningless to meaning is as simple as reframing an ancient and almost entirely forgotten perspective. And wouldn't that be a great gift both to us and to our neighbors? 
Because this is not how God intended it to be. And to understand this, we must do something radical, which, which, which is a word that means from the root. We, we must go back to the beginning. That's why this story is so important. Genesis 2.5 tells us, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. In other words, humanity is just is just as integral as or is just as important as rain is to the earth. So then Genesis 2, 7 and 8 and 15 tell us the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man, to work it and keep it. That's why he put them there. Not just walk around naked and eat. I'm not, I'm not dissing that. <laughs> I'm just saying that wasn't his purpose. <laughs> the most notable thing about these passages, though, is that they take place before the fall. Most Christians I've talked to don't know that work is not the result of sin. It is part of God's original plan for humanity. Work is not the result of sin. Toil is the result of sin. And all work eventually becomes toil. Even if you're working in a job that you are passionate about, you will sometimes hate it. But work is part of God's original design for humanity. And the Hebrew word work here is very important. It's it, because it's a multifaceted Old Testament word that we're going to explore in just a minute. But let that sink in. Work is literally one of the things that we are created for. It's right there. God created you and me to work. And that's really only the beginning of the story. Adam started out tending a garden, but God had much bigger plans in mind. Genesis 1, 27 and 28 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Feel the, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, Adam and Eve's dominion over the garden was to expand in to dominion, not domination, dominion over the whole earth by producing godly offspring and teaching them to work, they were sub to subdue all of creation. The language of subduing and ruling mirrors what God did in creation, turning chaos into order. Adam and Eve then are to further order creation. That's their job. And it won't happen by magic, but by concerted effort. In other words, work. And by the way, there are only two kinds of work. And they're not meaningful and meaningless. 
the categories you and I mostly see. They are good work and bad work. Okay? Good work is any work that further orders creation, brings more order to creation. Bad work is anything that disorders it. And there, there are bad actors and bad work going on in our world. And all, but all good work is inherently meaningful. Being told that we we should pursue our passion is it's okay. But really, we should be reframing that anything that we do that is good work is inherently meaningful. I mentioned last week that what theologians call in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, the cultural mandate, God mandating that human beings make culture. Adam and Eve will produce children. Those children will create families and those families will band together into cities and social networks. Those networks of human beings will reflect all aspects of human culture, language and art and music and food and philosophy and theology. It's no accident that the ultimate biblical picture of redeemed humanity in Revelation 21-2 involves a city because a city can reflect human culture at its most developed and complex. God's purpose for humanity starts in a garden but culminates in a great cultural center. God fully expected the children of Adam and Eve to split the atom, to write great music and literature, and to go into space. He didn't just intend for them to have babies and trim trees. They were meant to exercise dominion over all of creation, turning the entire earth into a showcase of the glory and beauty and majesty of God, and then working it and caring for it and stewarding it for all eternity. So God was so work was God's design from the beginning, and the ultimate goal was buy it for every aspect of life and culture to be saturated by the beauty and glory and love of God. So let's look at how this is woven into the fabric of Scripture. And by the way, my mind was blown the first time I heard this. I told you last week, as Lauren's and my children have grown and left home, we have no new stories or very few of them. We just tell and retell and retell the same old ones in front of our grandchildren now who are starting to get it. And this is important because C.S. Lewis said, the matter of our story should be a part of the habitual furniture of our minds. The big stories, the stories that shape our lives, situate us, and they must be told and retold till they become the like the familiar furniture in our home. Even in the dark, we can know precisely where we are. And as we are just shy of one month into the new work year, I want to go back to a story many of you have heard before. You've heard me tell it. It's a story about two important words. The first one is this. The ancient Hebrew word for integrity or integral, tome, 
means seamless. And I'm going to flip things a bit. In fact, it might seem at first like a non sequitur, but I want to illustrate why this is so important. For many Christians today, worship lacks integrity. Now, I, by that, I, I don't mean that worship has been largely flattened to singing, which I do see as problematic, or that they're faking it. Just that for many, worship is what we do on Sunday, but it's almost entirely compartmentalized. It's separated from the rest of our week. It's not seamless. It's cut from a different bolt of cloth than the rest of our lives. Sunday and Monday are disintegrated. But the scriptures don't see it that way. They see worship as just one thread in a seamless fabric. And so maybe counterintuitively, as we think about a biblical understanding of work, the best place to start is by reframing how we imagine worship. Because this is where a true and proper understanding of what we'll be doing tomorrow morning at 10.30 a.m. begins. I'd like to ask you, just trust me on this one. Close your eyes for just a moment. Don't worry, it's not an altar call. I'm not going to ask anyone to raise their hand when no one else is looking, though you should know I am looking. Just close your eyes for a moment and take a deep breath in and out. Relax your body and engage your imagination. Picture in your mind the very first thing that comes to your mind when you hear each of five words. Work. Worship. Service. Ministry. And craftsmanship, or the arts. open your eyes now. In some coaching that I've done, I've often had people draw what they imagine. And what usually happens for people is that people picture five different things for those words. Uh, something like a computer for work, like maybe hands raised for worship, people helping for service, people with other people for ministry, and musical notes or paintbrushes for craftsmanship or the arts. But the scriptures don't picture those as five unrelated things. In fact, throughout much of the Old Testament, just one word is used to describe all five. Worship, work, service, ministry, and craftsmanship. The word is avodah. And it's not that the ancient Hebrews didn't have enough words. Trust me, they had plenty of words. Anybody who's tried to study Hebrew knows that. They had plenty. But there's an important pattern here. And this is why I would sometimes have people draw, to kind of get the right side of the brain working. Because while the left side of our brain is great at seeing particulars, the right side is much more adept at seeing patterns in things. And here's the pattern. God sees all five of these, work, worship, service, ministry, and the arts, as threads 
in a single fabric labeled avoda. They're not cut from different bolts of cloth. And if we're paying attention, it has some radical implications for how we imagine our day-to-day -day lives. Here's how we learn that from the scriptures, and they're, they're in your bulletin as an insert, all of these. The first thread in the fabric called avodah is work. Its first use is in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and take care of it. Chavod, avodah, work. God is a worker and work was created by God. It's not the result of the curse, as I said. Toilets. And by the way, just to dispel any wrong thinking on this, childbirth, pain in childbirth is not a result of the curse either. Pain in childbirth was increased because of sin. Because sin touches everything. But it was already there. Avodah is also used in Exodus to describe the hard work of God's people making bricks as slaves in Egypt. Exodus 1.14 says, They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Psalm 104.23 says, Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. These are just a few examples, but it, this is found over 400 times throughout the Old Testament. It's not the exception. Avodah is also rendered worship, making it the second thread. A couple of instances from Exodus, Exodus 3.12. And God said, I will be with you, and, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship me on this mountain. Exodus 8.1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. <laughs> Significantly, and this is very significant, the word liturgy, derives from two Greek words literally meaning public working, or later in Latin, the work of the people. In the church today, we hear a lot about integrating faith and work, but the, this implicitly assumes that they are cut from different bolts of cloth, which we then kind of patch together. Integral, however, as I said before, comes from a Hebrew word meaning, at its root, seamless. Jesus said in Matthew 9, No one sews a patch of new cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. In other words, it will disintegrate. Trying to integrate faith and work is a little like sewing a new cloth on an old garment. We, we learn from the beginning chapters of God's story that he created all of life, though, on one loom. So it has an integral and seamless nature. There's nothing to integrate. And I'm not being pedantic, though I do enjoy being that. 
<laughs> the difference between integral and integrate is not semantics. It is seamless. I mean, it is, it is substantive. Connecting Sunday to Monday means to see all of life as a seamless cloth to live both privately and publicly with integrity. In other words, coherently or seamlessly. Not to patch the otherwise disconnected parts of our lives together or to think of some things as implicitly sacred and others as implicitly secular. That dichotomy, by the way, is found nowhere in Scripture. In fact, in ancient Hebrew, there's not even a word for spiritual. Because everything is spiritual. I love what... Charles Spurgeon said in a sermon in 1874, to the man who lives unto God, nothing is secular, everything is sacred. He puts on his workday garment and it is a vestment to him. He sits down to his meal and it is a sacrament. He goes forth to his labor and therein exercises the office of the priesthood. His breath is incense and his life a sacrifice. He sleeps in the bosom of God and lives and moves in the divine presence. To draw a line and say this is sacred and this is secular is opposed to the teaching of Christ and to the spirit of the gospel. By tearing down the secular sacred divide, we realize that God cares about everything that we do. Our response to God's power and glory can come from every thought, every word, every action, if we steward all that we have to his glory and honor. In this, we find purpose and fulfillment even in the most mundane things that we do. 1 Timothy 4.4 says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And a verse you hear every week, Psalm 24.1, The earth is the Lord's, and what? Everything in it. It's all sacred. What I'm about to say might seem at first sacrilegious, but what we will be doing tomorrow morning at 10.43 is no more sacred than what we're doing right now. This is different and necessary. And it's work we're doing together in communion with the entire body of Christ. The sacraments are being administered, or will be, the word of God is being read and taught as the word of God. But it's not somehow more sacred. Biblically, there's no seam between Sunday and Monday. Okay, so in this seamless plot, the third and fourth threads, and I, it is 1044 now, and I need to, I need to land this thing at some point. Okay, so the... In this seamless cloth, the third and fourth threads, service and ministry, are wound very tightly together. Second Chronicles 8.14 says, According to the ruling of David his father, he, Solomon, he's talking about here, appointed the divisions of priests for their service, and Levites for their offices of praise and ministry, before the priests as the duty of each day required, service and 
ministry. Avodah is used four times in Joshua 24, 15. The renewal of the covenant, of God's covenant at Shechem, well known, and it's just a very well-known Old Testament passage. But if serving the Lord seems desirable, undesirable to you, then choose for this yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors I am just butchering this. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So, service and ministry. The fifth thread, then, is craftsmanship or the arts. First Chronicles 4.21. <coughs> Uh, says this, the sons of Shelah, son of Judah, Ur, the father of Lekah, Ladah, the father of Merishah, and the clans who crafted fine linens at Beth Ashbeh. So crafted there is the word Avodah. And in fact, I, I did not know this until this last Thursday morning, or it was, I guess it was the night before when I read this first time. The very first person, the very first person in Scripture described as being filled with the Spirit. Any guesses on who that is? Bezalel. Bezalel. The guys who were in that study should know that. The rest of you fail. No. <laughs> I mean the guys from Thursday morning. Bezalel, not a prophet or priest like Abraham, Moses, or Aaron, who had all lived and died by this time. Actually, Moses was Moses and Aaron were still alive. But a craftsman in Exodus 31. This is this is after these other guys, which I, I think is noteworthy. Later, King David tells his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28, 21, the divisions of the priests and Levites are ready for all the work on the temple of God, and every willing man skilled in any craft will help you work. Again, in this one verse, it's rendered two different ways in the same, in the same sentence as both work and craftsmanship. Interesting, interesting to think about the fact that yesterday, as many of us labored together in, in that church building and we worked hard, probably woke up sore, some of us this morning, we were not just preparing a place of worship, but the work itself was an act worship and holy. And it's not just because we were doing it in a church. When we went home and did dishes, it was the same thing. Many of you will never see this, but scrawled on one of the supporting ribs inside that magnificent baptismal font back there is a single word. Avodah. Hmm. Avodah is a seamless fabric 
and work, worship, service, ministry, and craftsmanship, or the arts are threads in that fabric. All of these ordinary day-to-day things are holy to the Lord. In the prophecy of Zechariah, we get a picture of chapter 4 of the big story of Scripture. What will be when Jesus returns to make all things new? Again, not all new things, all things new. Everything, even the most ordinary things, will be considered holy to the Lord. Zechariah 14, verses 20 and 21 say this. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on all the harnesses and bells of the horses, on every cooking pot. Every cooking pot will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. Just the ordinary day-to-day stuff. I'd be willing to bet that most of us don't wake up Monday morning and think this is worship. But seriously, how would telling ourselves that story change things? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.